Okay, good afternoon. We're going to get started, and it's, it's my pleasure to introduce Stephen Reynolds. Uh, Stephen Reynolds is a partner at Ice Miller's Litigation and Intellectual Property Group. He co-chairs the firm's data security and privacy practice. He's a former computer programmer and IT analyst, so he comes with a good background. He concentrates his practice on commercial litigation and data security and privacy. Stephen is a certified information system security professional and a certified information privacy professional. So uh, without any further ado, I'll introduce Stephen Reynolds. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here, Jerry. Um, uh, like Jerry said, I, my background uh, before becoming a lawyer was in IT, so I have some experience there as a computer programmer. I used to do web-based programming and PHP, MySQL, all that sort of good stuff back in the day. But uh, here I'm not going to talk to you too much about tech stuff. I'm going to talk to you more about the kind of legal perspective of cybercrime. And so what I thought I'd do, I'll try to make this interactive too, and if you have questions, uh, feel free to ask them as I'm talking. But here are really the topics I want to cover, just an overview of the cybercrime that I see in my practice, um, the kind of the top threats we see. And then you know, data breaches you hear a lot about, but I thought it's always good sometimes when we're on the phone with a client when they've had a data breach or we're talking to a company ahead of time, they wonder, you know, what is it exactly that the lawyers do for a data breach? They know what a computer forensics firm does, and the PR firm, you know, and what law enforcement does usually, but they, they really wonder what is outside counsel's role in that. So I'll kind of take you through what, what I do and what law firms do uh, related to data breach. And then I thought we'd talk about, you know, how the, uh, the data breaches and different cyber crimes play out in a courtroom. Um, and then feel free to ask questions about that because I think that's one of those forgotten aspects of these things and we'll kind of maybe explain a little bit more about what a lawyer's role is in a data breach and I typically, you know, when those things happen, I'm working with the, the IT people as well. So the top threats we're seeing, here we go, <laughs> is, uh, in cybercrime are fund transfer fraud. So a lot of what you see in the news about data breaches, you know, lost social security numbers or credit card numbers. We see a lot of attacks for companies stealing money. So getting, tricking people into wiring money out of a company, those types of things. Ransomware, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard about in the news or may, you know, have experience with. I'll, I'll show you kind of examples of those. Malicious insiders, uh, these are you know, the typical scenarios. Some employee on his last day or the week before he leaves the company, plugs in a thumb drive, tries to take a bunch of company documents, or tries to actively sabotage this company. Uh, W-2 phishing scams, that around tax season is very prevalent in the beginning of the year. And I'll show you some examples of those. And I know there's been some kind of uh, attacks that have gotten some press in Indiana. And then we'll talk about data breaches. Fund transfer fraud, like I said, this is basically the attack, the cyber attacker trying to either steal money out from a company or trick someone in the company to wiring money to them. The most, uh, you know, and this has been a huge, huge issue for, for companies. The FBI, their last statistics reported over $1.2 billion in losses reported to law enforcement alone. I would imagine the number is much higher because a lot of these companies don't report these to law enforcement. So what does one of these attacks look like? Uh, typically it's an email like this. Uh, I don't know if you can see, see right here, but it's typically an email that spoofs an email coming from some executive, someone you trust who's higher up in the company. And this one, this example, it's going to the CFO. And it's asking him to process an outside wire transfer. So this is an example we see a lot of. Um, there's variations on these. The hackers, they are very good at these. They will watch social media 
they will see, you know, if they know the CEO is traveling, they'll say, hey, we just closed a deal in Hong Kong, please wire money to this bank. And we've seen them be sneaky about it too. They'll put in things like, this is a very confidential company transaction, please do not discuss with anyone else. And so, and it always say very important, you know, this needs to be done now. And I think they kind of get people's emotions to where they're, they're just doing something and not thinking about it and they, they end up wiring money outside of their companies. The other thing we see a lot of times with these is, this example is going to a CFO, but you know, it's easy for them to find you know, people through LinkedIn and social media who works and who's in what roles at companies. And a lot of times they want to hit like a, a mid-level person, they'll name drop, they'll say, hey, I already talked to Jan and finance, this is fine, you know, sort of thing, and they'll drop in details. And sometimes they are actually in the company's email system. So they've read emails from the CEO. They know how he sends emails when he does uh, wire transfer requests. So they will look even more legitimate. So this is a common type of attack we see um, for, on, against our clients and others. So how does this play out in a courtroom? Um, well, you have basically what's called the UCC. It's the universal. Uni Form commercial code. And the default actually in these types of incidents is the liability falls to, the, the default liability is for the liability to fall to the bank. But there's a huge exception there that basically swallows the rule which says the liability falls to the customer if the bank has adopted a commercially reasonable security procedure and followed that procedure in good faith. Now, what does commercially reasonable mean? There are not a lot of cases on these. Um, but courts will generally look to industry standards. So, you know, they may say, is it commercially reasonable for the bank to have a system where it only takes one person to authorize a wire transfer? Um, so that's what comes up in these types of disputes. Um, you know, is it commercially reasonable for the bank to only require a username and a password? Or is commercially reasonableness really mean they should have multi-factor authentication? Or they should have two people confirm or voice controls? So you get all of these types of issues when you have one of these situations come up uh, where money gets wired out of companies. And then obviously there's the factual question of did the bank follow the security procedure? There's a lot of nuances in these cases. They're, they're very interesting from a legal perspective. You know, some of the arguments the bank might make are we, argue, we offered these additional security procedures to the customer and they declined them. You know, we had a procedure that says for foreign wire transfers, we're going to require you to do X, Y, and Z, but you did not, you know, you know, take us up and, you know, take us up on that offer to use that security procedure. So those things all come into play when there's litigation or disputes over these fund transfers. Move this along. So next is ransomware. You probably see a lot of this in the news. This is just a quick example of a ransomware attack uh, that's similar to ones uh, we've seen on our clients, where you get an email that's not unusual for an HR person to get an e email that says, see my resume attached. You know, that's an email that they may open on a daily basis, especially if they have a position open. And the cyber attackers can see those positions and they can tailor the email and say, hey, I'm applying for this. And then the person opens the attachment, Sometimes it's, they click a link within the attachment and then they get a ransomware screen. Uh, ransomware then runs and it, it, this happens in a matter of seconds, uh, less than a minute, they can encrypt all of the files on your computer. So the files are still there, they're just encrypted so you can't use them. 
Uh, the ransomware, this is an old, old variant of ransomware, CryptoLocker. The newer ransomware does things like uh, not only encrypt the files on your computer, it encrypts the files on every network drive your computer has access to, even if that computer is not mapped to the network drive. So these can really cripple a company. This is when companies find out if their backups really work, <laughs> or they find out how quickly they can set up a Bitcoin account and pay the, uh, the attackers. Um, the, the, there's a local FBI offices uh, here in Indiana, and so a lot of times you work with, the lawyers get involved in working with the FBI and helping the clients make the decision on whether they're going to pay the ransom or not. Um, malicious insiders we talked about. These are examples from the uh, law enforcement community of uh, malicious insiders. I'm sure everyone recognizes uh, Ed Snowden and there's, uh, there's Aldrich Ames and uh, Robert Hansen as well, just kind of some examples of some malicious insiders. From a legal perspective, lawyers worry about this too. And we worry about it, uh, there's a couple examples, uh, not to pick on IT people, but here are examples recently of law firms whose IT people caused them to have you know, committed cybercrime. One was a, a large law firm where their IT person was, you know, lawyers get a lot of confidential information about their clients. So you know, we know about mergers or acquisitions, things like that, before they happen. And so this employee was, uh, was using that information, who was not a lawyer, was an IT person, to do insider trading. Or there was a, an IT engineer uh, who was actually sentenced to nine and a half years in jail for a network attack on his law firm after he left. So you know these are examples for lawyers, but it's something you know every company has to be aware of. Um, you know, you know that auditing and separation of controls between the IT people and you know making sure they're not the ones who are also in charge with watching themselves. Another one we see, like I talked about, is this uh, W2 phishing scam. This is a this is a, a, a big one during this time of year. This is an example based on you know, a lot of actual attacks. Last year we probably helped um, a dozen or so clients deal with this W-2 phishing scam attack. This is a very, very common attack. The IRS has put out alerts about this, um, but it's very simple. It's a lot like the fund transfer fraud attack, except it's directed to new people. So the accounts payable, the people who handle, handle wire transfer, they've gotten used to seeing these spoof attacks. They see them a lot. The HR people, they're not used to getting targeted as much. They get targeted now through ransomware and through this W-2 phishing scheme where it's just a request from what looks like the CEO to send uh, W-2s for review. And this is an attack that a lot of people fall for because you know, they're, they're doing what their bosses ask them to do is what they think and they're not checking the email headers to see if they're spoofed, those types of things. Then data breach. Um, you know, that, that is a, a huge topic all of its own, but I thought what we'd focus on is you know, what do lawyers do during a data breach? So one task we do is assist with the uh, execution of a breach response plan. So if the company has an incident response plan, we help them kind of almost like the coach and coordinating all the different elements uh, when you have a data breach. That could mean working with a PR team, working with law enforcement, uh, working with um, computer forensics uh, people who are doing, you know, people who are trying to figure out what happened and people who are trying to stop and fix the breach. So there could be a lot of moving parts and, you know, part of the lawyer's job is just making sure everything is, is happening, making sure that what's needing to take place is going on and with that, identifying legal obligations that the company may have. So one is I, I want to make clear in what we, we talk to with companies a lot of times, we get a call from a client that says, hey, I've had a data breach. And I like to say at the outset, you don't know that yet. You know, you may have had a security incident, but data breach is a legally defined term. 
and that definition is different in almost every state that has a data breach notification law. So all, there are 47 different state laws on what constitutes a data breach. There are some similarities between them, but there are some differences. In some states, losing a username and a password um, in and of itself to an online account counts as a data breach that requires notice. In some states, a username and password to an account that has financial information is what counts as a data breach. In some states, it's only social security numbers, credit card numbers, financial account numbers. The whole username and password thing is no part of their data breach statutes. So there's really a legal determination that has to be made of, you know, one, did the company have a data breach? And then two, what are their legal obligations in connection with that? And those become something that's, that has to be, you know, it's very important decisions to be made at the outset, and unfortunately it has to be made pretty quickly as well. While you're gathering information, while computer forensics is being done. Yeah, go ahead. That's exactly right. We've had some clients who I, I would advise doing this because it makes it a lot smoother, who actually have a project manager who works through with them on their incident response team. Um, but a lot of times we end up doing, you know, in addition to legal work, kind of the project management work because there are, there are a lot of different things going on when a data breach occurs. You know, if you're working with a PR firm, you know, what statement do we put out to employees? What statements do we put out to possibly affected people? And we'll talk about how important those statements are when we talk about the uh, litigation. Yeah, go ahead. So if a company is fortunate enough to have a CISO, do they normally pick up that ball to kind of, or you know, not? There's, a, there's an interesting dynamic that happens when there's a data breach and the company has a CISO. Because on, on one hand, I, I really think there's a human element to, I've allowed this to happen. Um, so that person a lot of times is really focused on figuring out what happened and fixing it and they are not worried about talking to the FBI, what the PR message is going to be. So usually they are not the ones who are kind of coordinating the whole response plan. You know, calls with the board, a lot of times we try to keep the CISO focused on what they are doing and fixing the problem because they are getting nonstop questions over and over. You know, the board members want to ask them what's happened if it's, you know, a large company. The CEO wants to ask, people keep wanting to ask, you know, is it fixed yet? What happened? And so I know my uh, colleague, um, the co-chair of my practice, he used to run information security for a company, and he would say when they have an incident like that, they actually had someone assigned to deflect all the questions from the CISO because they just get inundated with you know, everyone wanting to know what's going on. So they usually don't end up being the person who runs the, uh, the response team. But good questions, and feel free anyone to, to jump in. Another important aspect, which uh, my colleague Nick Ruse, I think, talked about uh, when he spoke at this, uh, this series, was about potential insurance coverage. So a company may have insurance coverage uh, that provides support for the data breach. They may be, at the same time, having to argue with their insurance company over you know, whether there's coverage for the breach, who's the counsel they're going to select, and who's the forensics vendor or PR vendor they're going to use. And those are tasks that are typically done by the, the attorneys to handle. You don't want your, your CISO or your, your tech people uh, or sometimes even the client themselves to have to worry about doing that in the midst of a data breach. Um, the scope of the breach, and we'll talk about the, uh, the cases coming up uh, and how important this is, but it's important not to just identify whether there's been a breach. It's important to know, you know as quickly as you can who's been affected 
what type of data was affected. You know, is it just social security numbers? Is it driver's license numbers? Uh, you know, is it credit card numbers? What type of information has been compromised? Um, in some states, loss of social security numbers without the first name and last name to them isn't a data breach. So, you know, there's, these things aren't just intuitive. And another comment on the state laws, which I probably should have gone into a little more detail on, the state law that applies, the, the state attorney generals contend, is the state of the resident whose data was lost or affected. So even if you're an Indiana company, if you have customers who live in any other state, you have to look at to what those laws are for those customers in their respective states. So you know, if you have, you're a convenience store and you have customers who come in through probably every state in the US and there's some loss or some data breach, you have to look to what every one of those state laws are uh, for what your legal obligations may be. So it becomes this, this large task. I have, a, I have a binder in my desk of all the 47 laws, and I know them you know, pretty well from, from dealing with breaches uh, so often, but still, you know, these laws change. You know, every, around July, there are a lot of updates. A lot of states have new laws then. So you know, it becomes uh, quite a task when there's a, a large data breach of just identifying the company's legal obligations um, and, and the scope of the breach. You also have contractual obligations. So for instance, if you're hosting another company's data, uh, or if you do business with a, a, a government entity, they may impose on, on you obligations to report data breaches in addition to the ones that are in statutes and laws. And those can have really short time frames as well. Um, the forensic investigation, that becomes a very important uh, part of this as well. So, it's in, lawyers get involved here in a lot of areas to kind of protect the privilege and the work product and the things that are going on from potential litigation down the road. Which means, you know, if you hire a forensic consultant to come in and look at the data breach and they say, you didn't have X, Y, and Z security procedures, you may not want that document produced later if there's customers suing you uh, in litigation. Uh, if the attorney is directing that work, if the attorney is leading that work, you have an argument that that report from the forensic examiner is work product or is attorney-client privileged and doesn't have to be produced in litigation down the road. And then there's law enforcement becomes a part of this. I can, I can tell you that um, early on when we did a lot of these cases, clients would ask us, you know, what's the chance that they actually catch the person? I can tell you we've had at least two where they've actually caught the person uh, responsible for these cyber crimes and they've led to some federal indictments. So it doesn't happen very often, especially if the person is overseas, but uh, the, the FBI and law enforcement agencies, they are getting very savvy on these and um, they encourage companies to be very cooperative with these and especially if you, you see these people replicate the same types of attacks. So if they do it to another company and another company, you know, it's, I, for, I forget the name of the theory or, or criminological principle, but every time you do the, the same crime, you're more likely to get caught. You always leave something behind that, uh, that is a clue. Yeah, good questions. Yeah, and the question was uh, what happens when the attacker is overseas? What power does law enforcement have? And it depends on the country. So if we have treaties or agreements with the country, 
then they may cooperate with us. There are some countries, and it depends on the time, you know, it depends, uh, I don't know if you, you follow the news sometimes, you'll see shortly after some, you know, meeting with the president and the head of some country, they round up some cyber attackers and some people get uh, sent over to the U.S. who the U.S. may know have committed crimes and they've been in the U.S and they've not been extradited. Uh, the FBI and law enforcement gets extremely creative with these. They, they have ways of going after the people. I will say it's definitely less likely um, for them to bring in and actually arrest someone in a foreign country, but it does happen, and they have cooperations with uh, law enforcement agencies in other countries. Okay. Is it too early to, to, to see if there's a trend about more cooperation, less cooperation, or None at all, or nothing's changing, or a little more time is required to figure oh, that with out. The, with the current administration? Internationally. Oh, just internationally? I think there are definitely some trends you can, you can see. Like if you read news articles about when these people get, um, get brought to the U.S., get extradited, you can sell which countries are cooperating with the U.S., um, and, and sometimes they actually make announcements about that. You'll see, you know, like President Obama or, you know, someone from the State Department meet with the head of state of another country and they'll make an announcement saying we've agreed to cooperate you know on these types of things so i think you can kind of just watch the news and follow and see what countries and a lot of times it's just based on what countries have uh, better relationships with the united states and which ones don't so we've talked about these notifications there's the 47 or so different uh, state notification laws that come into play um, so that's a lot of the part that lawyers play when there's a data breach. So what I, I find the more interesting thing is it's really easy to just come in and say there's been a data breach, let's send out some notification letters. But the lawyer's job is more than that and I want to show you know how our um, how kind of the decisions made when responding to a data breach play out in litigation. And so there's different types of litigation that may occur from a data breach. One is your consumer class action. Those are the ones you probably hear about, they get the most press. That's where the actual customers whose information has been uh, allegedly compromised file a lawsuit against the company on behalf of themselves and other individuals and say, you know, you owe me money because this data breach happened. There can also be shareholder lawsuits. Now, when I hear SEC, I'm from Florida, I think of this SEC, but it's actually the Securities and Exchange Commission that has set some guidance for publicly traded companies. So they said back in 2011, they issued a guidance uh, regarding publicly traded companies' disclosure obligations related to cybersecurity risk and cyber incidents. And so what this means is if you are a shareholder of a publicly traded company and that company has a data breach and it's had known about this breach and maybe it's known about this breach for a year or two years and it just comes out in the press and now all of a sudden your stock price has gone down, you can probably find a plaintiff's attorney who'd be willing to sue that company and say they've committed some sort of uh, you know, securities violations or violations that would entitle you as a shareholder of the company to be compensated. That's another type of litigation you see against companies from data breaches, even if you weren't the person whose data was lost. Uh, we see also individual lawsuits. This is a jury verdict form from an actual case in Indiana. This was in Marion County where the plaintiff sued uh, Walgreen Pharmacy over the uh, a pharmacist alleged uh, disclosure of her, I guess longer alleged at this point, <laughs> disclosure of her information. And you see the jury awarded $1.8 million and uh, found Walgreen 80% uh, at fault. So I, I forget doing the math how much they had, you know, their verdict was, but this was upheld by the uh, Indiana Courts of Appeal. 
So we see also individual lawsuits based on uh, data breaches or, or loss of data. There's also regulatory action. So in addition to you know, some shareholders bringing a lawsuit against you for things related to publicly traded companies, you have the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, FCC, and Department of Health and Human Services, which all have the ability to come in and take administrative actions and possibly fine or enter into um, agreed orders with companies who have had uh, security breaches. And then the last one, which I think is becoming more common, is you have these business versus business lawsuits. Uh, a good example of that would be a data breach where credit card information is lost. So let's say your company has had a, a massive data breach and 100,000 credit cards uh, were lost. The credit card companies or banks have to reissue those cards you know, when they know of the fraud. Those companies have started suing the businesses that had the data breach, saying you're responsible for our cost to have to reissue each one of these cards. It may cost us you know, $5 per card in cost of postage, you know, manufacturing process, and the increased call volume we received when the breach happened. So you know, they may be somewhat creative in these claims, but in a lot of ways, they may have a better claim of actual injury than the consumer who's affected because they have a concrete cost they can sell. I had to reprint a credit card and reissue them to 20,000 people. Uh, you owe me for this breach you had because of that. So we have those lawsuits as well that may occur from data breaches. So now I kind of wanted to take you through you know, how these play out in a courtroom. So I thought I'd just, I think reading from, from cases and reading them, although you do a lot of that in law school, it gets a little boring. So I thought I'd play for you part of the oral argument in a case called Spokio. Uh, is anyone familiar with that Spokio uh, website? Okay, got it. So that's the website. You know what it, it, you can do with it. You can look up people online. This is a website where you can find out information on people. Spokio, this case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court on a case where a person sued Spokio saying that they put false information about him online. I won't get into all the, the legal details of this, but the question, it's a question called standing was what was up to the Supreme Court. So the question was, has he suffered a concrete injury? Does he have an injury in fact just because this company may have violated a federal statute about um, reporting information about people online? So I'll play a little clip from uh, just, Justice uh, Sotomayor asking questions uh, on that argument. Is actionable isn't in the absence that, of real harm. Isn't that, though, a question of the application of the statute? No, I think... It doesn't invalidate the injury here because this is the quintessential violation of the statute. He's saying they don't have reasonable procedures to check their accuracy. We know from the purpose section of the statute that that's what Congress wanted, reasonable procedures. He's going to have to prove that. Number two, he says, the information about me is false. I'm going to assume, for purposes of this argument, because we have to, that, um, and so does the court below with respect to standing, that much of that information is inaccurate. I will tell you that I know plenty of single people who look at whether someone who's proposed a date is married or not. So if you're not married, and there's a report out there saying you are, um, that's a potential injury. Now, I know the court below said it was speculative, but that's what Congress was worried about, both creditworthiness and, um, and your stature as a person, your privacy, your sense of self, that I can identify. So really, the, kind of the, the key thing I want you to keep in mind here is judges are people. 
And so this is kind of a personal, you know, this was, there's some legal analysis here, but she's saying this person's allegations were, Spokio said I was married, I'm not, you know, and she's saying this sounds to me like a real damage. I can imagine a situation where, you know, what's, what's your damage is I get less dates because, you know, I, I go, you know, I try to meet people, they Google me or they look me up on Spokio and see I'm married and they never, you know, return my calls. So I, I want you to keep in mind, you know, that, that data breaches and the litigation that results from it is a very human thing. So think about the facts and the circumstances of every case. This wasn't a case about a data breach, it was about privacy concerns. And this issue of standing is what often comes up in data breach litigation. Has the person, the person who's filing the lawsuit, really had an injury in fact? So I want you to think, you know, use your own, you know, judges use their own experiences, uh, you know, when they think about these things. So think about the, each breach is a little different, so think about the circumstances of each one. And that's a part of what the lawyers do as well to advise their clients. So with that in mind, we'll point to a case that actually involved a data breach, so I can kind of show you how that impacts the litigation, the uh, you know, individual elements in the response. So this is a case called, uh, this was against Neiman Marcus, the, uh, the stores. Uh, they had a data breach around the holidays. This was actually years ago when they had this breach, but you know, cases take a while, so it made itself up to the Seventh Circuit, which is based in Chicago in uh, 2015. And this is a uh, quote from the, or a clip from the oral argument with uh, Chief Giant, Judge Diane Wood asking questions. Up. Kind of a cursory investigation, actually, I thought, by the district court. But here's what worries me. I mean, there, there's no doubt that the people that Neiman Marcus notified had been subject to this data breach, um, had already suffered the data breach. So their information um, and from Neiman Marcus's own records uh, had been compromised. And people whose information is compromised, as Neiman Marcus itself recognized, uh, are at a much greater risk of identity theft. That presumably is why they offered a year's free uh, credit monitoring. And even if, which I believe is not, I don't think this fact is before us, even if some people had their, their fraudulent charges reimbursed, uh, identity theft victims, at least according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, spend a lot of money uh, to put monitoring provisions into place. That money probably is well spent. Um, according to BJS, about 14% of identity theft victims experience out-of-pocket losses of a dollar or more. Uh, but the average cost is $17,769. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a real immediate injury, it seems to So let's take a step back. How many people have, uh, by show of hands, have received one of these letters? You've been part of a data breach. We're going to offer you some free credit monitoring. So a lot of hands up in the room on that one. Um, has anyone taken those companies up on those offers before? So certainly. Um, that takes you some time and effort to sign up, I imagine. But let's kind of take a step back. Their breach, I believe, in Neiman Marcus didn't involve social security numbers. I believe it just involved credit card numbers. What is it you're monitoring for when you get that credit monitoring? What is your concern you're trying to avoid? Go ahead.
other things that are tied to my financial status. Exactly. So the main threat, like you said, is someone opening a new line of credit in your name. If someone has your credit card number and your first name and last name, can they open a new line of credit in your name with just that information? What do you guys think? Okay. Just that and nothing else, my guess would be a department store card, probably not. Uh, with a, um, some I've seen some department stores which, if you have a major credit card, will open an account for you just on that major credit card. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I, I thought the same thing. This seems to be a knee-jerk reaction by companies, is to say, we've had a data breach, let's just offer some credit monitoring. It actually kind of came back to bite Neiman Marcus a little bit with this because they had to turn around and when the lawsuit was filed, they're arguing, yeah, there was this lawsuit, but no one was really hurt. <laughs> you know, there was no injury in fact. Yeah, we offered credit monitoring, but really no one really needed credit monitoring. It was just credit card numbers uh, that were compromised. So when you have a data breach, I think you need to make that analysis. That's very interesting what you said about uh, major credit cards you know, with that alone opening a line of credit in their name. But I think you need to do an actual analysis and say, hey, with the information that's been compromised, you know, what is the threat with this? And what should we offer our, um, our customers? Should we offer credit monitoring? Because this has legal implications down the road, just you offering credit monitoring. So this is just one, oh, go ahead. Just a question is, you know, you get one year coverage. I think T-Mobile was actually offering like two year coverage for this um, credit, you know, PAI, notification information is there how, how do you know if one year or two years is too much or too little protection once there is a data breach that's an excellent question i mean realistically if someone has your that information it's not like they only have two years to use it <laughs> you know so it's 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 a little bit arbitrary i will tell you from representing clients we know that you know a lot of the states when you notify the state attorney generals you also, there's a, a box where you tell them, here's what we're offering to people who are affected. And some, if you say one year, will call you back or they'll send me a letter, an email, and say, hey, we really prefer that companies offer two years for these. I, I think it's a little arbitrary, but you know, I think it does make sense to some extent. I think the hackers or the people who take the data probably try to use it quickly before it goes stale and probably try to use it before you do something like put a credit freeze on your account. So for example, for that W-2 phishing attack we talk about, a lot of times that one, if I'm advising a client on that, even before there is an actual you know, requirement, you know, states may have a 15-day or 30-day requirement, even before we've done this legal analysis of every state's data breach notification law, you know, and these are, their employees are affected, I say get out of communication as soon as possible and tell the people, set up a PIN with the IRS, or file your taxes as soon as you can, because the hackers, as soon as they get those W-2s, are most more than likely going to try to rush out and file fake tax returns with that information. So kind of the, the point of this exercise, I think you're picking up to, is each breach is different. You know, think about the actual legal risk and risk to the consumers with each breach, and respond to it accordingly, rather than have just this knee-jerk reaction to to any data breach. And I think next case, this breach happened after Neiman Marcus highlights that even further. This is, uh, again, I have a, from Chief Judge Diane Woods. This case involved P.F. Chang's uh, restaurants and the data breach they had. And this is, again, a clip from oral argument. And but not see, one here's, of the here's one of my both. questions about that. I mean, I guess it's possible, you know, that a, a restaurant or, 
you know, a small retailer that's part of a national chain um, might have its own internal computer network, but I would be rather surprised about that. Um, it seems much more likely to me that there's a corporate-wide network and maybe things are uploaded to it every day. I, I don't know how it works, but... Uh... So this actually, I wanted to highlight another thing. Lawyers and judges may not always understand technology. You know, I'm a little unique in that I was a computer programmer and a lawyer. That's not too often that you have people with that background. Even I, you know, don't understand, you know, how every network works that does credit card processing. I used to write credit card processing scripts for online stores when I was a programmer. So I have some understanding of it. But you can tell Judge Wood is saying, I'm not quite sure I understand how this works. But, and then the but is, you know, but here's what I'm thinking anyway. You know, they're not just going to say, I don't understand the technology. I'm not going to rule. They're going to rule based on how they imagine it works. Go ahead. Well, and that's, with credit cards especially, that's, that's causing a, a shift in the industry. Uh, my CubeMate is actually responsible for Purdue's payment card industry compliance, and both Purdue and other entities are, are shifting towards completely taking our networks out of scope with this. Vendors are offering what we call E2E, end-to-end -end systems, where you buy the device and it encrypts everything right there at the source all the way to the bank. That way we don't have the liability of that data re resting on our networks because, <clears throat> because it is such a high priority target yeah. and because it, it really, the, the standards that PCI are coming out with to say to protect it are so difficult to meet. And it's because of liability like this, you're seeing people step completely away from that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. They're saying we don't want them ever to touch our network, especially not unencrypted. So, you know, it is end-to-end -end encryption and that risk is all being pushed on this processor who's coming in and they're going to handle it. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So I think, you know, what, what's the, the interesting part is how the law is shaping, not necessarily the technology, but the business's reaction, uh, you know, to the law is changing how we do business. And this next clip is uh, the last one from uh, Judge David Hamilton. This was the same oral argument about the P.F. Chang's breach. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background, but I think you'll pick it up in the clip. P.F. Chang sent a preliminary notification to all of their customers saying there's been a data breach and we're not sure you know, who was affect which restaurants were affected. They then followed it up with another one saying here are the restaurants who were affected they actually won on this class action at the level below. The plaintiff who brought the lawsuit, it turned out they never even ate at the restaurants who were part of the data breach. P.F. Chang's moved to dismiss the lawsuit, saying they weren't even part of this data breach. The uh, district court, for that reason, and some others, uh, the trial court level, uh, ruled in P.F. Chang's favor. The case then came up to the Seventh Circuit on appeal, and this was after the Neiman Marcus decision, and you'll kind of see how this plays out. Counsel, given the logic of Neiman Marcus, um, I guess I don't understand why somebody can't have standing by just saying, I've read this P.F. Chang press release, I've been a customer, I've got a reasonable fear that my data has been compromised, so I'm going to take these precautionary measures. Well, is it a reasonable fear if P.F. Chang says we've had 33 stores that have had a problem and you didn't dine at one of those 33 stores? Well, did, first of all, the press release, the, the June press release, doesn't tell me which stores. It says we don't know how extensive this is. We are taking, you are taking precautionary measures all over the United States. Why isn't it reasonable for your customers to take similar precautionary measures? What, what happened was on, on June... 
let me tell you as a lawyer, when you're starting off, but what happened was that's never, never a good place to be an oral argument. So I guess what, it, based on just listening to this clip, what lessons do you see from uh, about preliminary notifications? It sounds like if a company have all your ducks in a row right from the beginning before yeah. you actually declare a formal incident. Yeah, thank you. Go it, ahead. it sounds like a company in exercising overabundance of caution can paint itself into a corner. Exactly. Sometimes it's best. Sometimes their best legal advice may be don't say anything yet. <laughs> um, we we have this joke uh, when we have a company have a data breach, a client have a data breach, and tell us what happened. We're like write this down now, and 24 hours again check what the story is now, and another 24 hours later see what the story is then. Because the initial facts you get, and it's not that people are lying, you know, just information's coming in quickly. It's not coming a lot of times to us directly from the CISO, it's coming third or second hand. Um, the information you get may not always be accurate, or you may just not know. PF Chang's probably at that point in time when they sent the preliminary notice said, we don't know if it's every store or just some stores, but we're going to notify all of our customers because that's, maybe they just thought that's the right thing to do. I think it came back to bite them here because had their first notice said, on, you know, had the notice came up you know, a week later, but said here are the people at the 33 stores who are affected, they may not have even been in this class action. So as you may have guessed from that oral argument, the case got, the dismissal was overturned and the case went back to the district court. And I believe that class action is still going on um, against PF Chase, but it definitely was reinstated after that. I, I had an experience of being on the, and probably several people here have, being on the opposite end uh, of someone who basically did not notify until they had a uh, strong belief. And, and even then, in my case, my notice required going to them and thinking, I think I was a member of this breach. Can you check? Mm -hmm. That's when they finally said, oh, yes, you were. Yeah. That's the Office of Personnel Management. Wow, yeah. And so that, that, that's the downside. The other, the, the worst is they, they come out looking really bad because they can't even notify people <laughs> yeah. properly. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, you know, the, the other risk is you decide you don't know enough yet and don't notify people. And how many people read Brian Krebs? Have you ever, guys ever read Krebs online on security? So, and then there's a report from Brian Krebs who reports on these saying, hey, your information's all on the dark web about all your customers. And then it's picked up by the press and you haven't sent notification letters out. Then you're in a whole other kind of legal, legal risk area as well. So the kind of the point of this, this exercise and going through these oral argument uh, clips is, you know, these decisions that get made very quickly, like should we notify people right now? Should we wait until we know which stores? Those things play a huge part in the litigation that comes down the road. Decisions that may, you know, maybe you think are a little bit smaller at the time end up making, you know, this could be a multi-million dollar difference in what P.F. Chang's ends up paying in this case. Um, so, you know, these are little decisions. And these are just kind of examples. There are other decisions that need to be made during a litigation, like whether to involve law enforcement, uh, whether to hire a PR firm, um, you know, who's going to make the reports to the board about what's happened. Those little, what may seem to be little decisions may have a huge impact later on the litigation. So I say this too because some of you may be uh, someday working as, as CISOs or, or as tech and companies and wonder why is the lawyer asking me these questions or why are they doing this? Why are there so many details? And that's the reason why because we want to know as many facts as we can and know what facts we don't know uh, before we, we make a decision or or you know, it affects how we will give our client advice about what to do during a data breach.
Um, another, any questions on the data breach aspect? I, I, I find this topic fascinating because, you know, as a lawyer, a lot of times the question is, you know, what do lawyers do? You know, you had a breach, send out these notification letters. What's the big deal? And I like to point out, you know, what you put in those letters and when you release them can make a big difference uh, down the road. It's something you don't see right at the time, but you'll see years later when there's litigation. So in another class, um, the Sony breach was discussed and it went to court. And basically, Sony was able to basically take the position that the hackers are to blame and the case was dismissed. Um, is that typically kind of the state of the art, if you will, in most these court decisions, or do they finally put some, um, I hate to say blame, but. Yeah, without talking about Sony specifically, um, I can say that I think the trend is, and like I said, judges are people, that early on these cases used to get dismissed. Every time, you know, I would say the, the consumer class action case was you don't have standing, you don't really have an injury, you know, the company was the victim here, and they would get dismissed. I think the trend is going the other way, especially here in the Seventh Circuit, which is you know Indiana, Illinois, this this region here in Wisconsin. Um, you know, the, the trend for courts now is to find plaintiffs do have an injury, and I think honestly it's because judges are people. And maybe some of them have dealt with the frustration that, that they may claim frustration in. Uh, you know, I've been a part of this breach. I now have to, you know, everything I had a recurring, recurring payment of, I have to change that financial information. So I think that may be part of the reason. I think eventually, you know, the Spokio case provided some clarity to, to the lower courts on the Supreme Court case. We, we listened to the clip on earlier on whether plaintiffs have standing, but that really wasn't a data breach case. And so I think eventually this may make its way to the Supreme Court and there may be some more guidance. But I think right now, it depends on circuits. So the U.S. is, is split into these different circuits in, in federal court. So it really depends on what court you're in on whether those claims will survive. And I think the trend has been pushing more towards those claims surviving. Um, Another example uh, of litigation, there's this, uh, there was an advanced auto parts case. Uh, this was one, there was actually a lawsuit uh, as a result of this W-2 phishing scam we talked about earlier. In this case, kind of following up on what you said, it actually got, got dismissed. The court found that the, uh, the company, the, the, um, the, the plaintiffs didn't have any cognizable injuries, found that the company was, was duped into this phishing type attack. It really looked at the company as a victim and found that the other side really, the plaintiffs didn't really have any injury from this case. So I think, you know, these ones are newer attacks, so courts may be less familiar with those as well. But so the cases I've seen come from those W-2 phishing attacks, so far I have not seen any successful litigation uh, by the employees or people whose, you know, W-2s are lost against their employer. And like the data breaches, generally the consumer ones, that may be changing as well. So are you saying on this one that none of these employees suffered problems getting their refunds because the W-2s got out there and no one filed any claims? So the, the funny the thing about this one, I think at this point these people had claimed their injury with some credit inquiries that had been made and the court found that those don't constitute an injury. The funny thing about there being so many data breaches, uh, one of the defenses companies can use in the litigation is we don't know how your information was lost. Is, yes, we lost it. But so did, you know, all of these other companies we can list that you also were part of that breach. I can tell you from a, 
when we offer the credit monitoring, so we partner with a vendor or different vendors when we offer credit monitoring for our, our clients in a breach, and we can actually see the statistics of how many people take the company up on that offer, and the levels are, are minimal in a lot of times. Sometimes we see less than 9% or 3% of people actually do the monitoring, and I think the reason why is because if they wanted free credit monitoring at this point, they probably could, could, could get it because they've been a victim of some other breach. So I think you have a defense here that companies are able to use that says, you know, there are so many different ways the attackers could have gotten your information. How do you know it came from our breach? And I think that's a difficult thing for plaintiffs to prove. You know, how do you prove that, you know, if I've had a breach, if I've lost your W-2 and you go to file your return and it says it's already been filed, you know, that's some circumstantial evidence that, you know, someone got your information. But if I'm the defending the company, I may say, you know, who else has your social security number? You know, did you put it on an application for a rental form? Did you, you know, use it when you had your cable installed? And look and see if those companies have had breaches as well. W-2 would seem a little bit different because you need addition, when you file your taxes, you either enclose the W-2 or you include in the electronic filing sub substantial information from the W-2 that would not be available from other sources. So that one's an interesting one. So what we've found with that, um, and there's some articles about this, is that they typically will target public employees because their salary information is online. If you're a state employee, so I know some colleges have been hit with this, you can look up a lot of information just publicly about them that you need to file the fake tax return. So if, as long as you have the social, you can figure, you know, you can get, for any state employee, the public website, you can see what their salary is. You can probably see where they work. You probably get a lot of those details that you would need to file file uh, that tax return. Yeah, but knowing the amounts of withholding and et cetera, yeah, I, there, I would think if you would actually go to and, and get the W-2 or get the tax return, you should be able to compare that and say, look, this is a match to the W-2 or it's not. You know, that's because a good there's point. A lot you probably of detailed look and see what they submitted to the IRS, yeah. but that's a lot of work for a plaintiff's firm to do. And so this is getting to the legal side. So when you have a class action, you have to, have to show to be able to bring a lawsuit on behalf of a large group of people that there's an inquiry that can be done that doesn't have to be done on an individualized basis. So that would be an inquiry, as a defense attorney, I'd say that's an individualized basis inquiry. So yes, this individual person may have a great claim against my client. They can show they've matched up all those things, but it's really hard to bring that as a class and say every single person whose W-2 is taken has that same claim because now you're having to do an inquiry for each one. And so as a plaintiff's attorney, you know, a single one-person case, not worth a lot of money, a huge class is worth a lot of money. So it's more difficult if you're having to say, we need to do an inquiry for each person. Uh, so that, that's, that's how you defeat class actions, one of the ways to say it requires. So as a defense attorney, I'd say that requires an individualized, individualized inquiry court. So you know, maybe they have a claim, but the class action should be dismissed. There was another question? You answered my question. Okay, gotcha. But I, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good idea. I think as a plaintiff's lawyer, that would be a, a smart thing to do is say, you know, because it's going to be difficult for you to say this breach, you know, came or this adverse effect on my client came from your particular data breach. So, you know, whatever you could do to show that, I think, would be, uh, it would be the way to establish it. That's all I had. Um, uh, you know, any questions? Feel free to ask. I will answer any questions about the time I came, except for about the time I came here for Breakfast Club, since we're being recorded. But you can ask those <laughs> off the record. <laughs> well, thank you.